Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, the show where we collectively try to untangle the colossal clusterfuck that is politics, news, and social justice in the year 2016. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News for MTV News. Coming up on the show today, Meredith Graves takes on prison visitation, Julie Ross talks tampon tax, Jamie Fuller introduces us to our new national mammal, Jane Coaston goes head-to-head with the Never Trump movement, and another visit with our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth. But first, we're going to welcome two new contributors to the stakes, MTV News Executive Editor Alex Papadimus and Senior Columnist Brian Phillips. Let's get to it. Marvel's new movie, Captain America Civil War, came out last week, and it's no surprise that it made a ton of money at the box office. While the comic book movies of the 80s and 90s mostly focused on the superheroes' own perspectives, post-9-11 comic book movies tend to focus on how society at large perceives the stars of the film. Brian Phillips wrote about it for MTV News in a piece called Captain America, Civil War, and the Superhero Insecurity State. Brian sat down with MTV's Alex Papadimus to discuss how Civil War reflects today's political climate. Due to time constraints, they will not be discussing how Hawkeye is the worst Avenger in recorded human history. I really like this story, and I wanted to talk to you about it. I think you were you made a really valiant, if not super heroic, attempt to actually parse what is going on in these movies politically, because we're we're told often that these are you know like that Winter Soldier was a, a political thriller in the, the spirit of uh, Three Days of the Condor and uh, the Parallax View and all those things. There's a lot of talk about what the topical issues that these movies are engaging, but. Your piece was one of the few pieces I've seen that actually tried to tease out, like, what are they actually saying beyond, like, these things exist in the world, and so here is a version of them in the Marvel Universe. Right. People feel paranoid, so here are paranoid superheroes, or, like, people are being spied on, so here are superhero spies, or whatever, right? I mean, I do think they're trying to trying to do more than that. I don't know how how consciously they're trying to do more than that, but the jumble of themes is definitely there. I mean, what really struck me when I was watching uh, Civil War was this weird kind of conflation of like blame and power so that the more the superheroes fuck everything up, like the more they have to be trusted to fix it because no one else has the power necessary to fix it. So, you know, you let the terrible monster out of the multidimensional gate. Well, like you have to be the ones who go in with like the army and level Manhattan because no one else can possibly possibly defeat the monster. Right. It's the, 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 the Age of Ultron thing where uh, Ultron is unleashed by Tony Stark. And so the only solution is that Tony Stark has to build a better android. It's not that, like, you shouldn't build androids. It's that, oh, we, this next android, we're going to fix all the mistakes that we made with the previous one because the next one's going to be Paul Bettany. He's going to be a British android, a very exactly. proper British android. And, like, whoops, sorry about your fictional Eastern European country that we lifted, you know, two miles into the air and then <laughs> smashed to the ground, killing everyone. And, like, not to, not to like, spoiler this to death but like the the kind of motivating villain of civil war is a is a guy who lost his whole family in the fight at the end of age of ultron so like you know everything bad that happens inside of civil war is basically the fault of the avengers from like the previous avengers movie the really interesting thing about marvel movies right now is that it seems like this is just going to keep spiraling and spiraling and spiraling i don't know where they're going after civil war but we just have this like multi-generational like, saga of like blood and guilt at this point I don't know how familiar you are with the source material. Right, not too familiar. Okay, you don't have to be necessarily, but it's the original Civil War is a story by Mark Millar, who is a Scottish comics writer, 
And the thing about Scottish comics writers is that many of them are the really sort of out to upset the apple cart of continuity and superheroes and kind of make, you know, expose those concepts. Like a lot of the people like Grant Morrison and also Millar are following in the footsteps of Alan Moore kind of saying like, are, is the idea of the superhero, is it a childish and ultimately destructive fantasy, right? Right. And so Civil War in the comics is Mark Millar using the actual toys from the toy box to illustrate this concept by having them all sort of act like assholes. Once we've, we've been presented with these characters to sort of love and uh, root for, and then we have to pick a side all of a sudden. Right, and it's, it's you know, the comics are kind of, seems to me, like not being much of a comics guy, but it seems like they're sort of always operating on like multiple levels of reality where like anything can be explained away by the f- taking place in an alternate in an alternate universe or you know it's kind of like game of thrones now where you have like kind of multiple contradictory timelines running simultaneously it seems like the the marvel films are trying much more to be like history with a capital h where like every event is like momentous and uh you know resonates hugely in the in the world there's elements of this movie that i really thought were trenchant and yet I had a problem seeing it as a political movie because you're supposed to be able to root for either side. You know, you're supposed to be able to, if you like Captain America or you like Iron Man, you're supposed to be able to feel for either side of those things. Uh, it, it makes it hard. Nobody's, they don't want anybody to be wrong. Right. And so it becomes, I don't know if you felt this, but I, I feel like it becomes ideologically incoherent when that happens because it's like, oh, well, who's, like somebody has to be, there's a false equivalency, right? It's like the, the like somebody has to be wrong. Yeah, I think I think that it's it's a it's a horribly flawed idea that you can take a superhero story and make make a movie that's coherently political out of it because there are just too many like competing logical imperatives. Like not only can they not show that Tony Stark is right and Captain America is wrong or whatever, but they can't show that Captain America is wrong even in a vacuum because there are too many people invested in the idea of Captain America and those people are moving popcorn. So it's it seems like they can do like you know, two and a half acts of a political movie. And then in act three, like the superheroes just have to like blow shit up and get shit done and everything works out and they were right. Like what I thought was interesting about the ending of, of Civil War though, was that it it really didn't resolve in, in a positive way at all. It was like the, the conflict is still there. The big fight at the end was kind of all for nothing. Like it didn't, you know, the, I guess the the bad guy was defeated, but the bad guy's plan was so lame in the first place that it just seemed like it seemed like very personal and private at the end, which was is another way to move away from politics, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is it, it's weird because this is, I think, the lamest villain in the history of the Marvel. Well, he's so sympathetic, universe. like he's yeah. just this dude who lost his family and like maybe losing his family made him hatch like a diabolical plan. But like, who knows how you'd react to that situation? But he's almost yeah, superfluous to the narrative. Like he's there sort of he kind of puts a few things in motion, but it, there's never you know, it's not like, oh, it, this is all the fault of Baron Zemo and his evil plan. Right, he's, totally. I guess he's not a Baron in this, but he's yeah, he's Zemo. Uh, from the classic Captain America villain, played by young Danny Brühl in this. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, he's not, there's no, it, it, it's never revealed like, oh, he was actually the one, like in sort of comics tradition, it's always like, you know, these superheroes are always fighting each other at first. You know, like the first Avengers story is about all the rest of the Avengers fighting the Hulk. 
but they never, you know, invariably it's revealed, oh, Loki was just manipulating this thing the whole time. And like this, that's actually not the case here. It's the, the adversaries, you know, are the, the, are there, he is us. We right. met the enemy and he's us. Right. And, and there's kind of like a fragile truce at the end where they've, they've, you know, beaten the hell out of each other and then just agreed to disagree. And Captain America writes Iron Man this like plaintive letter about how, you know, they, they can't be on the same side anymore, but they're still on the same side, like in a deeper way. But, but like like it's sort of hard to see how anything is better at the end. And this is kind of like the Empire Strikes Back of of superhero movies in the sense that like everything is broken at the end of it. If you're reading the movie for political themes, I think that's interesting, but I don't think the way the movie resolves them like makes a cogent political argument by any stretch of the imagination. Um the only other question I have really about this is does this remind you of anything? Does the sort of even-handedness to a fault exhibited by this movie where you have to believe that both Iron Man and Captain America have a point. Does this remind you of anything about, say, political news in this country? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, like, that's the logic of, like, all media coverage of elections, right? That, like, you can say that Donald Trump is wrong, but then out of the other side of your mouth, you have to say that Hillary Clinton has also been wrong at times. And, like, maybe their wrongness has, you know, like, massively different connotations. And and Donald Trump's wrongness is, like, cosmic in scale. And Hillary Clinton's wrongness is is pragmatist in scale. But, like, yeah, yeah, totally. There's a, also a weird way in which, like, the even-handedness of the movie masks like the sometimes troubling logic of what's really going on and how that that parallels like I mean this is cheesy but that parallels aspects of like reality too I mean your foreign policy like decades of your foreign policy like destabilizes a massive region of the world and makes like earth a much more dangerous place like what's the solution invest billions of dollars in drone warfare because the only people who can solve the problem are the people who have are who had the power to create the problem in the first place like that's the sort of like logic at work here and like I think you can see parallels to that in the financial crisis and depending on how like abstruse and grabby you want to be you can see parallels in uh, in lots of other aspects of life but the movies because like the superheroes always have to be the good guy the movies stand at a kind of weirdly abstract relation to that blame like where we see we see Tony Stark feeling bad for I don't know, what's the name of the the Eastern European country that oh, Sokovia Sokovia I'm yeah <laughs> you see Tony Stark like grieving over Sokovia but what you're really supposed to do is sympathize with Tony Stark in that moment you're not actually mourning like the massive carnage in Sokovia so, like, yeah, t- show, showing both sides, like, holds you at a distance from what's really going on in a, in a way that's, you know, chilling. Brian, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That was MTV News Executive Editor Alex Papadimus in conversation with columnist Brian Phillips. If you ever catch yourself thinking that the prison industrial complex could not possibly get more dystopian, rest assured that somewhere out there in America, there's a privatized Supermax facility waiting to prove you wrong. Meredith Graves is here this week to bring us up to speed on the latest developments in the monetization of incarceration. Okay, this week I'm going to break down a couple of incredibly alarming pieces of research that have been released over the last week or so, both of which have been overshadowed by celebrities doing rich people things and future overlord Cheeto, whatever the fuck, because we live in a banana republic where real news is outlawed, etc., etc., etc. 
This guy named Jack Smith IV, writing at Mike.com in a piece called The End of Prison Visitation, details how many prisons nationwide per state have done away with in-person visitation in favor of a shitty video calling setup that can cost people on the outside an average of a dollar per minute. This is forcing one in three families into debt just to stay in touch with their loved ones. And in some places, this can go up to $14 a minute. And of course, of the people on the outside going into debt to stay in touch with their families, 87% of them are women. Women. One, women already earn so much less than men. And two, that's not even really fair to say because women isn't a thing. White women, black women, and brown but non-black women all make different amounts of money measured against a white dude dollar. Now, factor in disproportionate rates of incarceration among non-whites, multiply that by the income difference relating first to gender, then race. Oh, okay, I dropped out of math in ninth grade, but you know what I'm saying. You're adding prison to people already trapped at the intersection of race, gender, and capitalism. In case their feet in fucking cement while you're at it. Make it even harder. Make it impossible to escape. Make it like the classic 1980s Canadian independent science fiction film Cube. A prisoner who remains close with friends and family while inside is substantially less likely to offend again once they're out. But as with so much of the prison industrial complex, it's not about prisoner rehabilitation, but the rights of private corporations and their monopolies on services for the incarcerated. Because, as his piece concludes, privatizing prison services makes a ton of fucking money. And speaking of how money is the root of evil in the prison system, which in case you forgot is literally supposed to be about justice and rehabilitation, data released yesterday, Tuesday, May 10th being yesterday as I'm saying this, on prisonpolicy.org details how the money bail system entraps Americans in, quote, an endless cycle of poverty and jail time. People. Innocent people, until proven guilty, who are unable to make bail are rotting in local jails long before heading off to whatever Walmart brand Supermax has outlawed in-person visitation in favor of RoboCop Skype. The numbers, while not surprising, are staggering. And these numbers, by the way, are just trying to figure out the percent different yearly income between people with jobs who go into jail unable to make bail and people from the same demographic who have jobs and aren't in jail. The poorest people, including lots of innocent people who can't afford to buy their way out of jails, which, in case you forgot, were designed to house criminals so they can be rehabilitated, are making an average of $9,000 to $15,000 a year, compared to $40,000 a year for a non-incarcerated person. That is a 61% difference. The odds are literally against them. A quote, black men in jail have a pre-incarceration median income 64% lower than that of their non-incarcerated counterparts. And again, factor in how much less women earn than men. Black women already have the median lowest income of any group pre-incarceration. It's unrealistic to expect anyone at that level of income disparity or any of her friends or family, as is often the case when whole communities have to band together and chip in to pay off absurd fucking legal fees, can come up with that kind of money in time. Another quote for you here. Because a system of money bail allows income to be the determining factor in whether someone can be released pretrial, our nation's jails are incarcerating too many people who are likely to show up for their court date and unlikely to be arrested for new criminal activity. Tell me again that we don't just throw people in jail for being poor. The bail system is designed to fail. It demands the most of the people least equipped to pay it. And then, once in jail, people are being denied human contact, amongst other things that will statistically increase their chance to be rehabilitated. People go into prison 
and they never emerge. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And meanwhile, the private corporations who keep those prisons running are getting extremely rich off what seems to amount to literal human slavery. I am not trying to be all wake up sheeple, but wake up sheeple, shit is fucked. That was MTV News correspondent Meredith Graves. Did you know tampons are taxed as a luxury item, but Viagra isn't? Boner pills, tax-free. Tampons, not so much. MTV's deputy political editor, Julianne Ross, spoke with journalist Ann Friedman about recent strides to end the tampon tax and how the internet is helping to reduce the inexplicable stigma that somehow still surrounds menstruation. So, Anne, you wrote this great article for New York Magazine recently about the fight to end the tampon tax um, and how this has become uh, what you refer to as viral legislation lately. Um, And just to set the scene, what actually is the tampon tax? So essentially it's the notion or the practice, not just the notion, um, that feminine hygiene products, pads, tampons, that sort of thing, are luxury goods, not medical necessities, Mm -hmm. and are therefore taxed along with other not totally necessary things. Women legislators, predominantly women, though not not entirely, have noticed this um, imbalance, if you will, and have introduced bills to remove the tax on pads and tampons and hygiene products. Yeah, and what's interesting is you say that in the past um, year or so, or in really recent history, this has been popping up more than it had in like the previous 30 years. Yeah, so there are five states um, that have moved at various points in time to remove this tax. Um, They're sort of all over the country. They're not all super liberal states like you might expect, Um, but they, they were years and years apart and didn't really seem connected, those moves. And then more recently, I would say probably around the middle of last year was when we saw the first one, um, there have been a total of eight states that where legis- legislation has been introduced to, to end the tax. And um, and so what I thought was interesting and one, one thing my editor and I talked about before I reported that piece is what is going on here? Is this a coordinated effort? Because often with conservative legislation, it's, it's literally from a playbook. Um, or is this some weird coincidence? Yeah, and what was really interesting to me and something that you mentioned in the piece is that, you know, as this legislation is coming up more frequently, I think we're also seeing a lot of period visibility on the internet. Um, you know, you have these ad campaigns from companies like HelloFlow or the Thinks Period Panties. Then you also have individual women um, posting about their periods. You had the young Canadian artist who made an Instagram post when she was bleeding through her pants. You had the woman in London who ran the marathon while free bleeding. And all of these things went really viral as well. Um, So how do you think that sort of visibility on the internet has played a role in anything that's happening offline with this legislation? It's hard to say. It definitely feels like it's all connected. And the legislators that I talked to said that it was not so much um, an inspiration they took from like Instagram or the internet zeitgeist. But um, in fact, uh, a lawmaker in Ohio told me that she was like, oh, you know, I noticed that Canada passed a law removing this tax. And I was like, that seems like a pretty good idea in a way that I could really economically benefit low income women in my state. And that's why she introduced the bill. Yeah. And you also mentioned that, you know, sometimes this can get 
written off as a supposedly frivolous concern, but it can be a way in to talk about other issues like whether these products should be free or whether uh, manufacturers should have to disclose any toxins in the products and things like that. Yeah, I, I think you only think that this is a frivolous issue if you have never had a period and never been close or compassionate <laughs> to someone who has. Right. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure that there's a level, too, of, um, listen, like women are really used to just grinning and bearing it when it comes to everything related to our periods. And so, yeah. like, oh, yeah, what's, what's, what's like paying tax on top of all of that? You know, maybe we're just, you know, we haven't really thought that hard about it until this moment. You know, there is sort of a community that has been formed I think around periods via the internet, like you had multiple instances in recent years of women live tweeting their periods. There was a story about it in the New York Times. Um, Irish women were live tweeting their periods after the prime minister um, passed this really restrictive abortion bill. Um, women were live tweeting their periods to Donald Trump after he made his uh, infamous Megyn Kelly comment. Um, so I think that you know there is an example of the internet at least letting women and anyone who experiences period talk about this more openly now. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, listen, you want to regulate my body? Well, do you know what that really means? You can't handle the truth. That's like what a lot of those campaigns <laughs> yeah. are rooted in. And and I think that there's a lot of truth to that, right? You know, if, um, if legislators really want to get nitty gritty about the ways women should be allowed to you know, seek an abortion or access other types of reproductive health care, then, um, you know, maybe they should be made aware of what that really entails. Yeah. Um, and it's so easy to be cynical, um, and I think maybe rightly so sometimes, about the power of the internet to actually um, affect any sort of change offline. But do you think this could be an example of whether it's a viral marketing campaign or an art project or even something like Twitter um, helping influence conversations in the quote unquote real world for good? I don't know, maybe. I mean, it's it's with this stuff is always hard to tell, right? It's hard to separate, like, you know, who's inspired by what. And, um, you know, these, I, I think that at the very least, it's running parallel to, a, like, you know, these laws are running parallel to a pop culture conversation. And, um, and therefore, that can't, that can't hurt. Um, and, you know, sometimes this is how trends happen. It's like, you can't really explain why everyone kind of got the same idea at the same time. It's a real slowly building thing. And I actually take a lot of comfort in that. I think it's pretty cool that no one had to pass around a playbook for, for anti-tampon tax legislation. Everyone kind of got the message that this was important and got the message that this is something um, a lot of women are thinking about right now. That was Julie Ross talking to Ann Friedman. You can find Ann's article on tampon tax reform at nymag.com. You're listening to The Stakes. We'll be right back. The responsibilities that go hand in hand with Julie's large and shiny deputy editor badge are many, so it's inevitable that she'll miss a story or two. Enter Jamie Fuller. Not just a friend, not just a cubicle neighbor, but a human repository of news that's too good to keep to herself. Jamie is here to make sure that Julie, along with the rest of us, stays up to date on the best of the rest. So, Jamie, what weird things are happening in politics this week? Well, I feel uh, bad for our listeners because they're going to get the impression that we only talk about animals. But I'm okay with that. I, I have yet another <laughs> political animal story this week. On Monday, Obama signed the National Bison Legacy Act. 
Did we not have a national mammal? Did they replace something? No, no, no. This is our, our first national mammal, and you might not have known this, but Clearly. the scientific name for bison is bison, bison, <laughs> bison, <laughs> which is is the great single greatest fact about bison. Yeah. But now, no, we didn't have a national mammal. We had a national animal. Is um, that the the bald eagle? Correct. Okay. Which we've had since 1782. And apparently Ben Franklin was not happy about that. He wanted the turkey. Which um, is not as majestic, <laughs> I gotta say. No, but he, he had some shade for the bald eagle. He called it a bird of bad moral character. Why? Because it was bald? Is that like a judgment on I think bald people? He, uh, he went on and said that it did its job uh, like dishonestly. Kansas, Oklahoma, and Wyoming all already had the bison as their state mammal, but now it's the national mammal. And it seems kind of the least we could do after all the crap we pulled with bison back in the 19th century. So to be honest, I kind of thought bison were extinct. Is that not true? No, no. Okay. They they came very close. So back in the 19th century, people just started shooting bison willy-nilly. And part of the problem was we built the trains going across America, and these tourists would take the train across America, and they just shoot them out the window. Just for Just, just for, for fun. Okay. And sometimes there'd be killing contests. And there was this one dude from Kansas who set a record by killing 120 bison in 40 minutes. Um, Buffalo Bill. Okay. You might have heard of that name before. I'm serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also a dude named Buffalo Bill who killed uh, about 5,000 uh, bison. A serial bison killer. Serial <laughs> bison killer in less than two years. So we, we nearly killed them all. And there were also people who killed them just because they wanted to be mean to Native Americans because bison are a really important part of Native American culture. So we get to the turn of the century, it's nearly 1900, and there are nearly no bison left. So this guy named William Temple Hornaday is really angry and he's like, oh no guys, we need to save the bison. And uh, there's a really great book called Wild Ones by John Muellum, and he's kind of an expert in all of the bad things that Americans do to animals, and this is what this book is about. But so he calls Hornaday our uh, taxidermist laureate. Um, and he worked for Smithsonian, and he's like, I'm going to get a whole bunch of bison and bring them back to Washington. And he just puts two on the National Mall outside the museum, and they're just chilling, eating grass. Just hanging out. And then, Was it like a man bison and a lady bison so they could repopulate I hope so. That'd be <laughs> such a good Disney rom-com, like yeah. <laughs> repopulating the world of bison. Wait, also, are bison different from buffalo? Uh, no, no, you can use those interchangeably. Okay. Right. And then Hornaday became uh, in charge of the Bronx Zoo, and they started shipping all these bison to the Bronx uh, and having them make beautiful little bison babies and then shipping them oh. back out to the world. And that and is so, how we repopulated. Yes, very bison. slowly, <laughs> once at a time in New York City. <laughs> and now there are like 20,000 bison just roaming around on public lands. In the Northeast? Uh, <laughs> or across the country? <laughs> across the country, mostly okay. in the plains. And like Yellowstone, there are a lot. And there are a couple hundred thousand that are being owned privately, and those are the ones we eat. 
All right. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, I thought they were extinct. And then I realized, like, if you go to, like, Williamsburg, <laughs> like, <laughs> in a lot of places in Brooklyn, you can definitely get bison burgers. Oh, yeah. It's, like, there's, there's bison jerky. Yeah. There's an association of ranchers who are just super pushing, making everyone eat bison. Is that going to change now that it's our national mammal? Like, No, nope. you can still eat them. You can't. Because you can't eat eagles, I would assume. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think people are, like, domesticating eagles. And I also okay. don't think they would taste very good. They just... There's not a lot of meat on those dudes. No. What you should not do if you want to go celebrate this great news is go take a selfie with bison. Will they, like, stampede? They can run fast, like 35 miles per hour fast, even though they're they're a ton. Um, But at Yellowstone last year, this woman tried to take a selfie with a bison and got severely injured and the centers bison herder mm-hmm, the centers for disease control actually put out a report being like don't take selfies with bison it's a bad idea what do you think ben franklin would think of the bison he did not like the the eagle they're not i wouldn't call them animals of bad moral character okay no one seems upset about the bison becoming the national mammal yet there was one representative from pennsylvania who joked to the new york times that we should make it the groundhog but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's that happening. is not as majestic <laughs> and noble no. no offense to groundhogs they're, no. they're cute but so so congrats bison you made yeah. it big congrats that was mtv news writer jamie fuller and deputy political editor julie ross donald trump presumptive gop nominee say it out loud Let it linger for a minute. Really marinate in it. Ugh. That's what Republicans have been doing for the past week, especially those leading the charge in the Never Trump movement. Jeff Blahar of Decision Desk HQ has been one of its most prominent voices. Our own Jane Koston sat down with him to talk about how it all came to this. I've read some arguments recently talking, saying from kind of from more conservative standpoints and then from more liberal standpoints, that a lot of people who appear to be voting for Trump think of themselves as being Republicans or think of themselves as being conservative. But they're very supportive of Trump, who you know I think you and I would both agree is neither of those things. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that is? Branding is a very powerful thing, especially in this sort of modern demotic internet age where we don't have the same gatekeepers that we once did. Now you can, you can celebrate that or you can lament that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we we've, we've democratized and I don't necessarily think always for the best our, our political discourse. Uh, we, we've gotten a lot, uh, a lot more sort of base in the way that we appeal to people. It's the reality television show uh, concept. So you see someone like Donald Trump, <clears throat> Donald Trump is a triumph of branding. He gets by on attitude and reputation far more than policies. And I think that there are a couple insights here. Now, for the people who are actually thinking about these issues on a serious level, the ones who call themselves conservatives, yet nevertheless back Trump, sometimes the excuse that they mount and I'm, I don't, obviously, I don't buy into this myself, but this is the argument that they would make is that they don't care that he personally isn't, you know, a very socially conservative person or even economically conservative because he's obviously rather protectionist in many ways. Uh, what they care about is that he seems to be their warrior, their bastard, in other words. You know, he's a bastard, but he's our bastard. That's what Lyndon Johnson famously said about some, uh, you know, East Asian dictator. That's the way that these people look at someone like Trump. They may not 
say, oh, he's one of us. In fact, they certainly must know it if they're thinking carefully about it. But they think, well, he'll fight for us. There is a lot of tribalism going on here. And when I use that term, I don't just mean the sort of white ethnic national identity kind of tribalism, although that is indeed a factor that can't be discounted. What I do mean is that they look at Trump and they just see this is a guy who's on our team. It's sub-rational. It's subconscious. It, it, it transcends reason. They just look at him and say, huh, he's one of us. Doesn't matter what his politics are. Doesn't matter that he changes positions by the day. What matters is the way that he carries himself, the way that he speaks, the way that he doesn't put up with any crap from people, makes uh, people who are otherwise fed up with the political system and who are largely on the right think, all right, well, I'm going to support this guy because at least he's going to shake things up. And again, it's not the most considered position, but it's also a very powerfully persuasive thing on a subrational level in the GOP primary. Now, of course, that's the key. In the in the Republican primary, it's one thing. As to how it's going to swing in a general election, well, that remains to be seen. So a lot of people have said that, okay, Trump appeals to white working class Americans, mostly men, who feel as if they've been left behind, feel as if, you know, that with kind of the LGBT movement or Black Lives Matter or kind of the outgrowth of feminism or something like that, that no one's really paying attention to them. Now, I think that that links back to your argument about tribalism, that Trump is kind of like, you know, he is standing up for this group, but it's very much of an in-group. It's very much of like, if you're a white working class man, this is your person. And so, you know, in this theoretical future, every leader, you know, every kind of group would have their person. Well, yeah, okay, so I'll buy that. I mean, there, there's certainly something to be said about the fact that the, the Democratic Party's abandonment of its working class roots uh, has played a huge role in the, the ferment of politics over the past, you know, 10 years. I mean, the Democratic Party, once upon a time, was the party of the little man. You know, the American worker, the, the, the union member, the manufacturer. Now it's not. Now the Democratic Party's primary brand, even more so now than ever, is e- elites who live in cities and make tons of money, uh, professionals in you know, that same urban environment, minorities and women. And that's the Democratic Party brand. And, and who is significantly left out of that? Well, you know, the kinds of people who all throughout the, the South or places like West Virginia, up the Midwest, the Union states, the Rust Belt used to consider themselves serious and hardcore Democrats because this is the party that was looking out for their interests. They no longer think that they are. They think they see a party that's been seized by, you know, elite interests on both coasts, uh, environmentalism, the LGBT agenda things like that. And they say, well, you know, what does this party have to offer me? And they're really not processing it very rationally. But on the other hand, there is also a a reasonable argument to be said that the the elite agreement on both parties about things like free trade has left a lot of people behind in the dust. We talk about the how Free trade is good for all. The aggregate benefits outstrip everything. It gives us our iPhones. It gives us our cheap computers and all these wonderful things that we have. And it's all true. What it also does is it destroys human lives. You can't retrain someone who worked at uh, on a manufacturing line for 15 years and tell them to become like a data entry specialist. It's just not going to happen. These, these, these sorts of people look at their way of life, the way that their family, their parents, their grandparents grew up, longtime Democrats, longtime, you know, sort of lower class or lower middle class people. They look at 
the consensuses of both parties, leaving them behind and saying that they're fundamentally unimportant. They don't matter. In fact, actually saying that they're the cause of all the problems in the world. We see with the social, this whole social justice movement talking about how white people, white men, white women are the worst thing that ever happened to civilization. It's obviously overstated. Those people are a fraction themselves, but they have a megaphone. And you look at the reaction that you get in places like, say, Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. And it doesn't shock me that they, uh, but I don't really blame the Democratic Party. What I blame is change. I mean, really what this is all about is two political parties struggling to come to terms with a technological revolution. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think my final question would be, do you think that there's still a place for kind of conservatism for, for kind of that movement, especially, you know, we've, when you have a candidate who w- wants single-payer health care, when you have a candidate who would make government bigger, and people seem to want that, my argument that I've used in the past is that Trump appeals to people like, no, 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 we want stuff too. Everybody else seems to get their stuff. Well, we want our own stuff, and then we don't want them to have stuff. Like, yeah, kick out so you know illegal immigrants, and then give us their stuff, and build this wall, and do all of that. Where's the place for conservatism in that? Well, okay, there has there has to be a place for this sort of thing. I mean, otherwise, what's the point, right? I mean, I have to say, emotionally, I'm committed to that. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be here. But beyond that, there's there is a belief, and I think this is correct that 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 Trump, whatever else his virtues or demerits, is ephemeral. He, he's a black swan. This is a once in a lifetime, once in a generation phenomenon. Once he goes. It's going to be left to the rest of us to pick up the pieces, particularly in the wake of, of a disastrous election in November. And the only thing that makes sense on a governing level is, you know, is conservatism, small government conservatism, because I can guarantee you what is going to happen. And I guarantee you what, what voters who otherwise like Trump are going to start realizing is that the larger the government you have, the more intrusive it becomes. And so, yeah, I do think that there is an opportunity that remains for conservatism as a governing value and, and, and also because I think it's the correct governing value. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, you, know, you can talk horse race stuff. You can talk, oh, well, what are the chances for this? What are the chances for that to succeed at the ballot box? But honestly, uh, I'm a conservative because I believe it's the way this country should be run, not for any other reason, not because I think it's popular or it's a way to power, but because it's the only thing that actually works. It's what makes this country exceptional. It makes it special. It makes us different from, say, England or, you know, name a European country of your choice. So, yeah, I do believe there is hope, but it's going to be pretty rough sailing for the next six months. I can guarantee you that and probably at least two years after that. That was MTV political writer Jane Coaston speaking to Jeff Blahar of Decision Desk HQ, a never Trumper till the bitter end. We're going to close things out this week with another offering from our very own poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth. This week, he brings us a reclamation of faith as an affirmation of queerness. You taught us that God has teeth, grinding, gritted, and hungry for a sacrifice of meat. You condemn us to burn and evangelize the feast. You taught me to hate my faith. Where true believers gather, I grew to fear that space. If they discovered my heart, they'd put me in my place. The church broke my mother's soul, wedged anxiety between me and my kin, screaming Leviticus, demanding control, and reducing my love to a sin. 
You tell queer folk that our hearts are lies, preach that we are despised, pray for our demise, never once looking into our eyes to see that faith and queerness are not a dichotomy. For both I'm blessed and you can't take either out of me. I left the church and went hunting God, who I found dancing with drag queens, working club scenes, and answering my dreams with a man I can love. God is a grandmother opening her home to queer kids you'd have let die alone. God is a chosen name and a true self-transcending gender to be someone else. God grows a beard and rocks stilettos, a love that embraces us as we let go of everything you say we should be. My faith taught me that we were all born free. Make your laws to defy us, invade our lives and deny us. At every turn we'll rise up, and I suggest that you wise up. Get that plank out of your eye, see that your hate is the devil's lie, and let me ask you this. For what it's worth, are you taking hostages or building a church? You taught us that God has teeth, but through the people you hate, some of us emerge from beneath your bigotry to claim faith in self with the soul-cleansing belief that God smiles because we are. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Stakes is a production of the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and at MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.